Welcome to Unboxing, Play and Profit for the Gaming Curious. Mm -hmm. I'm your host, Lane Nooney. I'm here with... Joost van der Rune. Oh, is that how you pronounce it? That's how you say it. I don't think I've ever heard him. I've been butchering that for several years. NYU professors who both teach classes on the video game industry, but in very different ways. Uh, we sort of teach sister classes. Yes. Uh, we wind up having a lot of the same students. You teach in the School of Business. I teach in a media studies department. Uh, but we've come together because we've gaming deserves better. We've reached better. out across the aisle. <laughs> across the aisle. From across 4th Street. Yes, uh, all the way across 4th Street. We both have, I think, similarities in our academic background in that we want to not just know what's going on, but like what drives it. And I have had the last 15 years, um, you know, the fortune of working in the industry as an analyst, as an investor, as an entrepreneur. And you've done it academically and have sort of, you know, beaten your hands bloody on the keyboard to distill from the history of the games industry, like how it came to be and what were the decisions or the indecisions that led to it, as we know it today. And so we both look for that larger, uh, you know, development in the games industry and how it came to be. So the pitch for this podcast is very simple. It's like, let's have a conversation. Let's get a little bit past what's your favorite game? <coughs> what's the flavor of the week? What does this white guy think about that game? Whatever, you know, let's get cut through the shit a little bit because so many of the podcasts that are out there, they don't really cut very deep, which is fine. It's or just, they cut deep in a very specific way, right? Well, so, yes. so one of our goals is is what, how could we make game industry news interesting to people who aren't game to, who aren't in the game industry? Exactly. Obviously, I think people in the game industry will be interested in this, but I think we also imagine that there's a broader spectrum of possible listeners who are interested in these topics not because they might be uh, you know the exact industry that they're in but because this is a this is an obviously massively important cultural phenomena that we lack a lot of literacy around correct we agree this is episode one Oh yeah, this is basically a prototype. We'll be ironing out how we do this from episode to episode. The thing I think we are going to consistently do is kind of open by talking about what's going on in our classes yes. from week to week and then use that as a lever for getting into talking about what's going on in the game industry this week. today. I do. It's the first day of school at NYU. It's the first day of school at Stern at least. I don't know. Is it it's it's, for, it's, it, it's, it's university-wide. So yes, today is the first day of class, which means I'm going to tell everybody, hey, here's my name. Here's what we're going to be doing. Here's what it's about and why. And here's what's expected from you. You know, Make a choice, make a decision. I'll see you next week. It's like it's it's a really easy. It's first a really compelling pitch. It's a very compelling pitch. I say it because um, it's very easy teaching. I, I never struggled to get their interest. Yeah, which yeah. I imagine is the same for you. No, absolutely the same for me. Um, what is your what's your take? Your class is called the business of video games. The business of video games. Business of video games. Do you feel like you have a core question in that class? Yeah. So the core question is how 
does the business side of gaming impact what eventually rolls out of it? So we could do a class on the economics of film. We could do a class on the business of the news and say, well, here's how media ownership and here's how the economics and the revenue models all in some way contribute to why this article does and that article doesn't make it, that this movie gets greenlit, yes or no, this portfolio gets approved, sold, whatever. That doesn't exist in gaming, so that's what the class is about. And it's rudimentary in the sense that it's um, an undergrad level where I focus on initially a couple of lectures on here's how the basic business model works the physical you know making of games is what a game studio is here's what distribution looks like what the hell happened to GameStop that's a whole lecture right <laughs> what's going on there and then it switches and then the smartphone and then digitalization and impacted it in this interesting way in that it became bigger but it also became different mm-hmm. and sort of that's sort of the, the the clutch there for me is like um, bigger means different right the, the industry changes dramatically everybody's a gamer now maybe maybe blah, not blah, blah. Yeah, yeah but that fundamentally changes what you see out there and so the economics and also the, of course the business models not just the revenue they change the types of games that we play today compared to mm-hmm. 10 20 years ago and that's just one part of the conversation, but that's just, you know, because of my background, I end up having a lot of access to people at big companies and I have a lot of data to throw around. So that's sort of my responsibility and to kind of make that a little bit more accessible. Yeah, so I teach a class called Video Game Economies, mm-hmm. and I teach that course in the Media Studies Department. How many students? Uh, I teach it a size of 50. But I get two types of students, I would say. I mean, I, get, I definitely get the, the video game hardliners. They, they, they love video games. Yeah. They're so excited to talk to them. <laughs> They're so excited to talk to me. They can't wait. They literally can't wait. They hands up every question, every pause. They have something they want to contribute. Uh, and then I actually, sometimes my favorite students, I'll get a kid who's just like, I don't know anything about this, but my boyfriend or girlfriend really likes games. So I just thought I'd learn some stuff. Oh, those, totally. Those kids are, they can be the best. Mm-hmm. Because they come in with no assumptions about what they're going to learn. They're like, yes. I know nothing about this. And as long as you have good study skills, mm-hmm. those kids sometimes will turn out the absolute best work. It can be, I find sometimes the kids who are most fixated on the game industry uh, or on what they think the game industry is mm-hmm. that can struggle because they, they that it's they have that problem getting objective distance, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of my class, you know, I asked you what your core question is. I would say that the core question in my class is where is power in any given economic transaction, yeah. right? I so this is a more kind of a, I, I would say a more like political economy in a, in a classic critical mode, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we're going to talk about capitalism and power relations through mm-hmm. the video game industry. Um, and so the idea is to not... The idea here is to, like, actually be sort of critics of the way all these platforms work, right? Mm-hmm. To actually try and understand what's going on under the hood of them by just looking at what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that can be a disenchanting process for mm-hmm. students who really, really love the yes. game industry. And uh, sometimes they can struggle with that kind of where their fandom belongs, right? In a, in a course like this, um, that's fascinating. That's I recognize that entirely. It's um, it's that two gr- there's two groups. There's the students that think they know and don't, and there's students that think they don't know and do. <laughs> and it's just like and it's, and it's you know I welcome 
all flavors because it ends up that discussion is okay Mr. Elden Ring level whatever like why don't you explain it to Joey over there why this matters or what the big deal is here and so they can sort of connect each other which was always and I think that's perhaps the same with you is you know the, the idea is to bring a bunch of people with different ideas around games and how to make them and how they what their place should be or whatever bring them in a room and have them discuss them right? there is no form for any of that and that's a um, you know the the dialogue for the games business or how games are made has largely been dominated by games journalists and financial analysts the sell side folk out there and then you know of course all the narratives that you get from earnings reports and that's kind of it you know there isn't nobody's wondering what it could be or should be or should be you see this now with all this consolidations like well, okay we're regulating it should be regulated and why right if you say we're regulating the news it's because it's bullshit if you only have access to one newspaper in whatever tiny town you live in but that makes sense that people should have access to multiple sources of information and not be limited by one or one or the other with games that conversation doesn't exist but that should, perhaps, right? And, and so the mechanics of that are... Resonant. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems essential to the critical health of the, the industry, which tends in such a fascinating way to still remain so insular, mm. right? Uh, games journalism and tech journalism still feel like separate things. I feel like we still lack a lot of literacy in how to talk about games, especially if you're not, like, knee-deep in the game industry. Answer me this question because we've been talking about doing this podcast for a whole week for all of in seven days. <laughs> but I think the, the the reason this all escalated so quickly uh, and that we got engaged in marriage so rapidly is is because there is like we feel very similar about this thing. But so, what's your take on what's missing in terms of understanding? Right, I, I can give you my version, but I'm curious to hear as someone who is full time dedicated to academia in this way. Like, what's what do you feel like students should already know when they come into the classroom, or should they know anything at all? Or like, you know, what's the what's the the, the intellectual vacuum here that drives you? Mm. That's a really good question. I mean, I, I, I think, and I don't think of this as being a student question. I think of this as being sort of an everybody question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, could we stop having the same goddamn gee whiz conversation about the game industry that happens every five to six years? Every time it, it like, you know, you saw this during the pandemic where everyone was like, wow, the game industry must really matter. It's so big. It's, and it's like, didn't we have this conversation eight years ago and then 15 years ago and then yep. 20 years ago? We again. Like, what is the fundamental problem? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that part of that problem Problem comes out of the game industry itself. I think it's been a bad translator of itself. I think it has catered to a narrow group of consumers who are obviously not the bulk of its consumers uh, for, for a really long time, and it's struggled to pivot out of that. And of course, part of it is subcultural. Gaming has an intimate language, right? It's embodied, it's practiced, it, it has a different, it's consumed in a very different way, mm-hmm. uh, and you have to engage in some kind of exposure to it. But I think we've for all that we say that everyone's a gamer now, I think we've done a poor job helping people understand what that actually means for them. Mm-hmm. 
That's a good answer. I like that. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good set. This is a, this is a pass, me passing grade. Let me go. Passing grade. Um, I um yeah I'm I'm trying to think how I would answer it myself, but it's the um I will agree with you that the industry, as I've experienced it over the years, it's it's very isolated. And you you. Been far more embedded in the industry than I have. Right? Yes. You, you ran a data company. Yes. So, so after I had the the PhD ended, I did the startup thing, which meant basically, uh, you know, going up to companies saying like, I know you have digital data that you don't care about because it's you know, whatever. It's like it's so small. But I have a diploma from the school. You should totally give it to me, and I'll do some. I'll do a PowerPoint for you, and it's going to be amazing. In exchange for a license, whatever. So we set up a data business, and it went rather well. And so the because the industry moved to digital predominantly. Right now, it's all eighty percent for Take Two and all these other companies. They they make most of their money through digital channels. So that worked out well. And because of that process, in the beginning, I was just whatever some some doofus trying to get these people's attention. And by the end, they all came to me. And it gives you a lot of access into like sort of the mindset of these companies. And to your point of thinking in an insular way, that's exactly how they think. They only think because they're almost defensive, right? So every and to give it a different example, it's always only whenever some gaming IP is licensed for a movie or a TV show that everybody's like, aha, we matter. It's like, really? Because this <laughs> going are, because, because 80s, Hollywood guys. gave you five minutes of their time. Like <laughs> some producer with nothing to do said, sure, I'll make your shitty movie. It's like, it's like and that's how they validate themselves. And it is not so much that that's the right way to go. It's proud to say that's how insecure it is, yeah. right? Yeah, it's it's yeah, a, yeah. a very insecure industry despite its size, despite its cultural impact and influence. And it can't let that go and you see that in the people that make games and you see that in people that play games too which is part of the reason why that whole Gamergate I think sort of went the way it went our kids don't even know what that is you might as well be telling them I feel like an old witch when I try to talk about it in In the ancient texts I I don't talk about it in class because Uh it it doesn't really I talk a lot about how games became masculinized over the course of Mm -hmm. the history of game marketing in the 1980s and 90s but I you know there's not there's not a ton of reason for me to talk about GG uh, Gamergate as it were uh, which I I'm not sure we want this digression this early in this it's, podcast history um, but they it's like talking to them about yeah it is ancient history it is archaic knowledge like, so then so then that's a third piece right so then yeah, it you know, moves so fast and that's what attracted me sort of from a academic standpoint so I came at gaming from a project uh, on media ownership. So I'm originally from the Netherlands. I moved to the US, back where I come from. Most media, at least at the time, were publicly owned and like a little bit of commercialized TV, radio, and so on. That shifted over time, but whatever, who cares about Holland? That place is so tiny. But you come to the US and it's 300 million people and all of a sudden like scale matters and the economics influence directly like how things are owned, distributed, produced, and so on. So I worked with this professor for seven years on uh, media ownership trends across 100 different industries, all the way from broadcast radio to copper wire and pagers. You know, so we did all these like all this analysis. 
built this whole data set and the one segment that never quite made sense was gaming I was like that's interesting right and of course I was always predisposed to have an interest into it but once it then kind of called itself say like hi over here pay attention to me it's like okay so that became the PhD and so I say this all because the games industry has this weird influence from technology from its consumer side from its culture and it's always doing something right the music industry kind of wonders like okay are we still doing CDs or finally moved on to like digital now yeah this is a premise I introduce on the first day of class which is we study games because they are the where the most experimental weirdest stuff particularly the intersection of interaction Mm -hmm. and monetization happen Mm -hmm. right like the way that games monetize has no comparison to anything else Mm -hmm. right the the phenomena of the microtransaction the 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 battle pass the season pass the the download it you know the paying for skins the, Mm -hmm. the buying boosts right it's it's a it's a little economic wonderland unto itself right? mm-hmm. it's, it's no other medium has figured out how to kind of like splinter itself into a thousand possibilities for nice. monetization yes. in the same way right um, there's something really special and experimental about the way that games do this, but also because that industry is so desperate to maintain its hold on currency. So answer me this question then, because I, I, I think we agree in a lot of stuff. But so, like, how do we? I mean, it's it's not for career purposes, but like, how do we as people that have to kind of be the evangelists of like, here's a set of interesting questions, and increasingly has cultural relevance, and there's a lot of bad stuff going on here, like when it comes to work toxicity, workplace toxicity, and so on. So, so what, what would be a good way to approach it? Like, how do we get more people into the conversation, right? Not to build our own station, but to say, I think, like news and film and music, which are incredibly critical cultural institutions for all these reasons, I believe the same value applies to games, right? And I say this as an academic and whatever, but also as a parent, that, that is where you rudimentary learn how the world around you makes sense, or at least how it operates. And it's the, so, so how do we get more people into that conversation? Like, how do you do that? How do I personally do that? I mean, so I... Do you go to parties and offer up all your wisdom? I, I mean, that's that's in. one thing. I Well, a lot of what happened... There was a whole period of my life where all I did at parties for a while was get cornered by moms. <laughs> cornered by moms? Cornered by moms, my album, my record, my new my new drop. Uh, cornered by moms asking me if it was okay for their kids to play Minecraft. Um, and then it transitioned to Fortnite, and then I just don't go to those kinds of... I have cooler parties I go to now. <laughs> Stop going. I go, to, I go to parties without moms. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love you. I love to come. Are there going to be any moms there? <laughs> I have a strict no moms policy. <laughs> I'm going to get canceled 100 percent for this opinion. Um, <laughs> I I just I think we need to stop being satisfied listening to the same old stories. We have allowed ourselves to believe a certain set of things about this industry because mm-hmm. a, a sm- what is ultimately a small set of captains of that industry, which I would say includes both 
the entrepreneurs, founders, investors, and then also their kind of handmaidens and amplifiers in the journalism industry mm-hmm. um, have propagated a certain vision about who they are and what they've done, right? Mm-hmm. And I think all sorts of arms of publishing do this. I think anything that wants to talk about, you know, heroes and game gods and, you know, just this kind of fascination with the designer to the sort of idea that these these companies are out to, to, to give the consumer great experiences. That's one of the first phrases I ban students from using in my class. You are not allowed to talk about how a company is giving consumers great experiences. That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. What, like, like... <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. You know, um, but they've, they've internalized... Just send them muffins. Th- there's there's an entire way of relating to this industry that has uh-huh. internalized a set of fundamental mythologies and bullshit about the way that it operates. And I... So in my work as a historian, I do a ton of heavy lifting to sort of show everything from showing how diverse the labor pools were to mm-hmm. kind of the capitalist roots of a lot of this, trying to demythologize or, or kind of t- take away the fantasy of the lone design developer, even in the early 1980s, right? right? Stop trying to create this continuum that all games are part of some great emotional tradition of human creativity, right? Like, these are, th- th- in a certain sense, that's why I foreground so intensely that they are economic objects. These are modes of economic life, mm-hmm. and which means they are available for criticism about their operation within capitalism. And because, you know, that's a big part of the critique of the way my class functions. But also, I would say a lot of my larger work is about um, how these, you know, economic systems kind of exploit and manipulate human creativity into models, into modes that from which capital can be extracted. And, and, and yeah, so I think part of it starts with creating new stories Hmm. Um, and so getting rid of trying to dismantle foundational myths that's a big part of my work I think part of it is creating spaces where different kinds of questions can be asked and so I think that that's part of the work that my class does I think that's the part of the work that like a podcast like this does the you know when we were doing the the whole week of research we did to to prepare ourselves for this adventure um, you know I listened to a bunch of game industry podcasts and I was like these are all fine if you're an upper manager in the game industry, mm-hmm. but if you don't, if you are not someone who wants to listen to 45 minutes of commentary on an electronic arts earnings call, like where do you go? How do you n- learn about the game industry in a way that um, isn't, that doesn't feel overwhelming, that doesn't feel like you've been confronted with a whole bunch of terminology and stuff that you don't know? Mm-hmm. Uh, where is kind of getting the ability to get little slices of that industry for people who are, we might say, games curious rather than games insiders. I was going to try and get us to talk about one piece of games news before we call it, which is um, is related to Activision and is also related to why you were late today. Yes. Because you had to give some comments about the Activision... Uh, 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 you, you summarize it. You'll do a better job than me. Why were you late today? I'd, I'd, so, so, so let me first properly and formally apologize <laughs> to Professor Nooney for my tardiness. I, was I, will, indeed, be, I will be taking note, a note I of that. I was tardy to the party. 
and for which you have my sincere apologies. I um, I had to quickly type up some comments to uh, Reuters because they asked me uh, to respond to this thing where the UK watchdog is looking into doing what they call phase two, which is a deeper investigation in the proposed acquisition of Activision Blizzard by Microsoft. So Microsoft is one of the biggest platforms, of course, but Activision is the largest US publisher. A lot of people have a hard time understanding how that's not bad for the games industry. Uh, so this 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 got announced late spring of yeah, this year? Yeah, it's, it's been right? out for a while. It's been out for a while. Um, why do people think it's bad? Well, the the size of it mostly, right? As things go, so the it's a sixty nine billion dollar acquisition, and it's really about the question of platform exclusivity. Will Microsoft make it so that you can only get Call of Duty on their platform, meaning Which Xbox, Xbox and yeah. Game Pass and that sort of ecosystem? And so, if you have a PlayStation, you're totally screwed. Um, that's sort of the anxiety among consumers, and of course, Microsoft yeah, to their to their uh, to their testament, but it's they've been issuing statements saying like we're not doing that no we're not doing that no, no we're actually not doing that and nobody hears them for some reason including regulators and they're like hey this is bad um, so with regulators you always have to be a little skeptical because they tend to have either one or two things um, they usually have totally a lack a complete lack of understanding when it comes to video games they don't know how the industry works. It's totally different than Rupert Murdoch owning cable and newspapers and film and music yeah. and all this stuff. Or, I mean, how is this different from Disney owning Star Wars and not letting Star Wars out on... I can't watch Star Wars on Netflix. I can't watch Star Wars on... You know, or maybe I can't. I, I don't know. I but, think that's a really fair point. So so the difference know, is... Am I misunderstanding something about... Because Call of Duty is an IP, fundamentally. Yes. Right? Um, am I misunderstanding something... In in that making that analogy no the difference is that uh, Disney is a creative firm mm. it's a publisher mm. or a label or an IP holder whatever you want to call it. but they're on the creative side and so they can choose to vertically integrate by expanding which is what they did with Disney Plus into their own distribution uh, network um, which gives them a lot of power which is of course why they pulled off on Netflix and then they built their own and now they're you know they're 200 million subscribers later they're the cats meow and that works out really well for them um, but they are fundamentally a creative company that just builds a distribution asset. Uh, Microsoft is a software developer, an operating system developer that has a, a gaming games wing, a games division, which really operates as a platform. And the keyword is probably platform here, because that makes it suspicious, just like every other platform out there, like Apple, <laughs> but it's lost yeah. with Epic around payments. And yeah, payment that, that this is all about kind of platform centralization, right? Platform centralization. Same thing with Meta, which all of its data and privacy issues. Google, same. Amazon, but it's incredible, uh, you know, efforts to uh, prevent people from joining unions everywhere because, God <laughs> forbid, you get paid fairly. And so, you know, so platforms, they immediately are sort of culprits. And so the idea and, that and, Microsoft and would buy Activision... rightfully so, in many cases, yeah. You, you know, yeah. that, and so, but, so those are, so this is the discussion of our generation, whereas a decade ago, it was about mass media, mm-hmm. right? I, I mentioned Rupert Burdog, and you had like these, the Berlusconi family in Italy, and there's a family like it in the Netherlands. They own lots of media.
media assets and then they build these economies of scale and they pipe their IP through all these channels. And is that good for democracy? Should we have, you know, the media that also inform the population? Should they be owned by two people or two companies? And does that make sense? Um, but that was about mass media. That was really about building scale. Now the word is platform. Yeah. Um, and the platform world is like, well, okay, I'm subsidizing this content industry. I'm giving you Amazon Prime or video games for free or cheap so that you're naturally locked into my ecosystem and now the only thing that you can do is buy more, buy more iPhones. So that's sort of the anxiety. And in the case of Microsoft and Activision, it's do I now never ever again get to play Call of Duty on my PlayStation? Because I love PlayStation. I only have PlayStations. I have T-shirts. I have a bedspread from PlayStation. That's so exciting. You know, is that... I mean, even, I if, even as someone who, who you know, obviously is... Uh, I'm, I'm going to be super um, on the side of, like, breaking up monopolies. Even I think it's a funny question. You know, like, oh, the great Call of Duty monopoly, you know? Um, it's, it's, you know, I was listening to the GameIndustry.biz podcast, and, and one of the guys on there was making this interesting point of, like, it's like, okay, they have Call of Duty. They don't own the first-person shooter genre. It seems well, hard. that's not entirely true. They, they own most of the big ones. They got Fallout. They got Halo. I mean, you know, they don't have Apex Legends. That's true. And they don't have any of the Chinese ones. But in Western markets, like, they at this point approximate like a, a dominating market share of all the major FPS <laughs> titles. Okay. So, so 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 I'll give I'll give I'll give the I'll give Professor Don June and Matt. Okay, fine. <laughs> Thank God. I'm on the board. I'm on the board. That's exciting. It's the uh, but so there's there's a message there that I think that's really interesting because, you know, I know that this is a conversation about platforms, but you know, in order for you to give a shit about games f- from this angle means that you also have to implicitly agree that there is some cultural relevance here. Yeah. For people to not have access to Call of Duty on PlayStation, Scott, for is, is a like, what does that mean? Is uh, that, and is that and is that like what drives that motivation? Is it purely to kind of demonize and and go after platforms and like kind of you know hit one across the face and make an example mm-hmm. out of them, or is it? Actually, this matters. They like there should be choice. There should be a, you know, diversity in those ecosystems. And how do we start to have a regulatory conversation and write mm-hmm. policy that establishes that? What is our sense of the U.S.? How how have U.S. regulators responded to this? So the U.S. is. Um, trying to catch up a little bit to Europe. Europe has been much more aggressive with fines and basically chastising these platforms because of the way that they treat data and their data practices. Germany is pretty big on it. The UK is Mm -hmm. very pesky. The US is kind of lagging behind, which is historically, of course, what they've always done with these kind of things because it's a much more like, oh, free market, blah, blah, blah. Um, The US is catching up. So they installed Lena Khan as the new FTC commissioner. uh, And, you know, she's much more proactive. (laughs) Yeah, proactive is, is, put it softly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you, but if you've read, so she published, while she was in law school, this this article on the. Amazon paradox like how do you regulate something that isn't necessarily inhibiting consumer choice and access because a lot of it is free or cheap or subsidized 
at the same time, like how do you measure and quantify, like how do these platform companies operate? That's different from vertically integrated mass media type companies previously. So she wrote this quite brilliant paper on it, and that you know short version immediately got her the job. Under the Biden administration, she's rewriting a lot of the scripts because a lot of the legislation, a lot of the policy around it is based on the fact that you would have no access to more than one newspaper, right? So you have these rules that say if you own in Topeka, Kansas, a newspaper and a TV broadcast station, you can't own also a radio station. Hmm. Or if you, you, know, you can only own two out of three. So they limit things, right? Um, and which is why in some cases on a local level, you see uh, different levels of media concentration than you do on a national level. Hmm. So that, none of that applies to platforms. And Lena Khan is uh, rewriting some of the work around it. And it's like, how do you do that? And the question I get from a lot of financial analysts is like, okay, is this going to happen? And it's going to be bad. Um, my expectation is that there will be a lawsuit purely because, you know, this is such a big deal. It's $69 billion and it's really one of the big ones right now. It would be a really poor showing if you didn't. Like, oh, we're going to rewrite the script. Let's not do something. And then everybody goes, well, what about this one? Yeah, we're not, we passed on that one. We're going to do this tinky, tiny one over here with Meta's trying to buy this VR company that's worth yeah, $6. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. So, so politically, they will probably have to do something just to kind of poke them a little bit. Um, but they're in that effort rewriting and catching up to uh, Europe. And then, of course, Asia, particularly uh, the Chinese, they come at it from a very different angle, but they too have been clamping down on regulation around the amount of time that miners can play and you know yep. who gets to release their content in the domestic market there. So, yes. so it's a big conversation. Yeah. It's fascinating. What are you reading, playing, watching? No, you first. Me first. Okay. I asked the question. I mean, I can do it. I've actually uh, just started reading um, Subprime Attention Crisis by Tim Huang. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's that? Face? That's that is that is some that is some title. Subprime it's Attention Crisis. Uh, it came out in 2020. Uh, so you know, it came out during the year of the pandemic. So I feel like it got a little, uh, probably a little swamped by <laughs> other by, by other issues. The author sort of kind of trying to get into the underbelly of the online advertising markets uh, mm -hmm. and, and really suggests that they might be more brittle than we think, uh, that these markets are what kind of prop up a whole bunch of our free access to the, to mm -hmm. the internet. I'm only a couple uh, chapters in, but even, even just for its kind of lucid explanation of how something like real-time bidding works, right? I mean, these are parts of... The, that's, some, that's a part of the game industry that I think we don't talk about enough, right? The entire ad back end of like that allows something like mobile to function right mm. as a as an ecology um so yeah i'm just giving that book a whirl so it's not games specific really but it obviously has a ton of overlap do, do you borrow from other areas to inform your games uh writing? i don't often have students read stuff that pertains to other industries uh, but so, but this is not you reading your books this is like always feeding into the class I think yeah it's it's developing my line of thinking about I think the the larger tech and stakes of platforms mm -hmm. that I think we see they are most vibrant in games first, but eventually become visible everywhere in the system. Hmm. 
right? I mean, because because we've you know we've been doing ad servicing in games has been like the ninth ring of hell for for you know I like like since they first started happening, right? It's like a it's a it's a you know a, a human centipede of, of of interaction where God, one man one man his visuals. <laughs> Um. <laughs> to answer that question myself, I've been reading a lot of journal articles. So I do. So I've wrote a piece recently on, you know, playgrounds and how the makeup of playgrounds has changed and what sort of the underlying reasons are. And I find it a really sort of useful drop off point. So I've been reading. I have it in front of me now. It says about families playing Animal Crossing during the pandemic. And why, right? It's like, well, because, of course, like, I want little Timmy to shut the hell up because I have to work. <laughs> so there's that. But they also have, you know, the, the much more productive and deeper um, read on it, which is families were under a lot of stress. You know, I have two kids now. I started the pandemic with one, and I ended up with two. <laughs> but can't, can't imagine how <laughs> that happened. What happened? It's like, and it's the, but the, the, you know, sitting with a child in your house, and that poor kid had six hours of, you know, remote class mm-hmm. every day, five days a week, and it's just this, like, hollow, I mean, I can't do a Zoom meeting for 20 minutes without, you know, casually turning off the volume, but it's the... You know, the stress that it puts on a household is substantial. And so this article talks about, like, how people dealt, and they do it by way of playing together in Animal Crossing. You can't go outside. They can't go see their friends. Uh, you got to do something with your kids, right? And so, you know, you can only glue, stick things together for that long. And so eventually they go to Animal Crossing, and it's very mundane. If you've played it, there's sort of, like, you just run through a sequence of, like, little domestic kind of things, like, you know, get the vegetables, pay your rent. Pull the weeds. Yeah. yeah pay like, off your debt. Classics. Classics. America. Pay off your debt. God Pay damn. off your debt. Why are you in debt, you slob? <laughs> no debt forgiveness in Animal Crossing. Absolutely that should be an expansion not. pack. It's absolutely Animal Crossing not. debt forgiveness. I did a whole podcast about uh, like like the problem of debt in Animal Crossing. <laughs> Like, How this is not actually a market, and people needed to stop talking about it like it was. Like, you know, um, what is the interest? You know, uh, the rates? I, I mean, you're not even told. You just show up, and suddenly you have debt. Like, it's, hey. like a, it's like an archaic form of debt. That's know? fantastic. That's like um, you just owe society for being. Did poor. you did you play Animal Crossing during the I pandemic? Did not. I didn't touch it. You know, I was too busy. Um, so I also had just uh, come out of a job. I left Nielsen in February two weeks before they shut everything down and just to kind of get everything out of my system I spent about six months playing Doom Eternal <laughs> which is not quite like Animal Crossing <laughs> it's similarly colorful but it's and, it, and it, you know the yeah. what triggered it was uh, Doom and secondly also it was uh, I played on Stadia I wanted to test cloud gaming I'm so excited mm. about that technology so but then it really became this sort of cleansing experience, which, to bring it back to this journal article, a lot of people then will play these games like Animal Crossing because it's repetitive, but it allows them to do these things like mood repair. Yeah. And it's, of course, escapism, but it's also 
an ability to kind of go through a set of activities that are very calming in the same way that some people will uh, listen to the same playlists over and over again because it's just like I don't want any new music yeah. to hit my ears while I'm working or, so or I just binging have these a favorite TV show and re-watching Friends for the 50th time yeah, I've been uh, I've been pl- mood repair I love it. is that a term in the article that's a, that's a, which I liked very much I, I've been playing Power Wash Simulator oh. almost every night and that that is a game of mood repair a that game of mood repair absolutely that should be a category it's um, it's a game where they have really nailed a game built around a singular action Mm -hmm. there's just nothing complicated about what you're doing right Mm -hmm. and yet it's intricate and detail oriented and repetitive and soothing and but it's not it's not it's not like it's not like I'm running a simulator where I have to do a bunch of things under a time frame and I'm all stressed out about it. <laughs> I gotta count things. Yeah, you know, it's not it's not a simulation in the in the city sense or my sims aren't gonna be mad that they can't get to a toilet, you know, it's it's it's, it's just madness. like you're in a room, you're in a three D rendered environment, you have a power washer, things are dirty, fix them. <laughs> and and you're just like, Okay, great, here we go. I'm, I'm gonna make this shiny. So so is it like um do you get like uh, the extensions on the power washer? Do you yeah, upgrade? so so you can do upgrades, which are are you could get you know there's the long extension, the extra long extension, the soap extension, mm. um, you know, and you can upgrade the quality of the power washer you have. I just got the ultimate power washer, which is great. Everything it's like just, just blasting burns that dirt right off the <laughs> wall, uh, and then you can, uh, you know, you can buy different outfits for yourself. But ultimately, you're just a hand with a power washer. You know, it like takes. <laughs> the mechanics of the first-person shooter and just turns it into a power washer. This is, um, like, this is like a clean eternal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very soothing. It's very soothing. So yeah, it's I, on Xbox I, Game Pass, which is how I wound up downloading it. I was like, this seems strange. Uh, I didn't know um, it was on there. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I had that same soothing experience with Doom. Like, it's, you know, once you see past the explosions and the noise and the screaming... Which is really, of course, I mean, it's a desensitizing game, let's be real, and it's always been that way for me. But there is a dance to it. Like, there is a, there's a, a movement in that, and it's probably the, the power washing, the same thing. It sort of a, becomes this calm, the center of the storm type of experience. I guess in your case, you know, whatever, power wash, it's not brutal enough, it's yeah, sign I don't, of weakness. I, yeah, I'm not trying to <laughs> keep myself alive while I'm doing it. Whereas yeah. I'm stuck on my masculinity, I have to constantly show how macho I am, so, you know, I shoot things. But it's there's a uh, that that control and that sort of um, hand-eye coordination and that sort of yeah. m- movement is very very. Uh, I mean that is common. one of the the magical things games can do as well, right? It's like um, make you be a part of a system, you know. Speaking of system, we should we should wrap t- we should up. teach. Yeah, we got to teach. If people want to reach out to us, how do they do that? If people want to give us comments, questions, feedback. If you have mean feedback, send it to Yoast. <laughs> Don't send it to me. Don't send it to Lane. Okay. Um, best way to reach us. Find us on Twitter. Find us on Twitter. That's a good idea. Yeah. That way we can ignore you if we don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> My Twitter handle is uh, Sierra, S-I-E-R-R-A underscore offline, O-F-F-L-I-N-E. That is a Sierra online joke. Yes. I'm Yoasterizer, J-O-O-S-T-E-R-I-Z-E-R, 
Or just Google Super Yost. You can do yeah. that, too. And I guess we'll find out if there's some other way that people leave comments on podcasts once we figure out yeah. how to make this, this podcast. Is, this, this is the beta test. This is... Uh, this is the first of many amazing conversations. 